0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. On today's show, me and my co-host, Michelle Markham, talk with a very nice young man who is a referee in England for the Amateur Leagues. And his we'll talk about his journey to wanting to help the referees with their mental health and much, much more. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today I'm joined with my lovely co-hosts Michelle Merkham and Nathan Charette. Did I pronounce your name right, Nathan? You did. All right. So, Nathan, I always like to ask my guests, tell me about yourself.
1: I think um, probably the best way to describe me is uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a person who's on the on the spectrum and. Um, I'm a business owner and I run my own business, self-employed. Uh, I'm also a football referee, which is in a massive, massive part of my business. Um, you know, working with officials of all sports across the world. Um, you know, guys across the US like yourselves, in Australia, um, really in every continent of the, uh, of the world. Um, and it's been a big part of of the work that I've done. So 26 years of age now and um, set up my business four and a half years ago and um, yeah it's something i'm really enjoying doing really loving doing and and, and looking forward
0: to talking about with you all right so let's start off with when were you diagnosed
1: um it would have been about probably 10 12 years ago i, I don't ever remember exactly um, and i do think about it a lot but i don't ever remember exactly when it was What I do know is that it was when I was in um, secondary school or high school, um, as you may call it in the US, and um, I was doing my exams to finish, um, you know, obviously being at school. And um, I knew that I needed extra time and I needed some support to help me get through the exams. And for me, it was a big opportunity to to try and get that. And that was all it really was for me. You know, it was a means to an end in terms of getting extra time for exams. And when I got the diagnosis, it didn't didn't have any meaning to me. Um, I didn't understand anything really about it. Um, I actually feel as if I lived probably till I was about 21 years of age as a neurotypical person with slight differences because I didn't know what it was to be be autistic. Um, I didn't understand how it impacted me. Um and you know it, it was a big big challenge but um I think what my understanding is that I think you you find that boys eighty percent of boys get a diagnosis under the age of ten so I know that I was unique in that regard to be to be in my mid teens at the time but um but yeah for sure it was something that I I didn't know a lot about until probably four or five years maybe six years after the actual diagnosis
0: all right so what are the kind of things you struggle with during your life and do you still struggle with them?
1: i think that, that one of the things that i always i think i always knew um that was a little bit different when i was a kid i always knew that I felt and um i think that i was aware that i, I was a lot more anxious than other other children um, and what i found when i was young was that i uh never sit in a traffic jam found that very very anxiety provoking Mm -hmm. um couldn't regulate my emotions in that situation when people and and things were not uh running to time and things like that i found that really incredibly difficult um and that's something that i think probably i've learned to mitigate a little bit as I've, i've become an adult um and and i've had to work very very hard at that i think um one of the things that i really really struggle with more than anything now is is around um, temperature, you know? So obviously for me, we were discussing it before we started recording this, it's getting very, very cold now as we head towards winter in the UK. So for me as a, as a football referee, being outside, it's very, very difficult, you know? I have to manage, you know, what I wear under my kit. I have to manage the fact that sometimes I need to wear gloves and things like that because of how how cold it gets, um, you know, for, to be out on, on a football pitch or a soccer pitch is, as you guys may call it. So I think well, that that's probably my big challenge around heat and around that that type of thing in terms of what the biggest sensory impact that I have is.
2: You mentioned that you know before you got your diagnosis you lived very much as a neurotypical person and I really resonated with that. I had a very similar story. Um, I just wanted accommodations in college. I wanted extra time on tests, private testing space. They made me get the diagnosis. That was a requirement. I blew it off. And so it was so great to hear from someone else that they had such a similar experience. I haven't heard that before. So it was really a great thing to hear that I wasn't the only one to have that experience. how would you say you have changed your life since you got the diagnosis? What new accommodations do you put in place? How is your life different post-diagnosis than it was pre-diagnosis?
1: Well, like I said, um, Michelle, you know, when I um, got that diagnosis, I didn't change my approach to life or make any differences until probably four, five, six years later when I was 21 years of age which is when I started my business. Um, and, and and the reason for that was that, like you say, it was a means to an end for me to get time in exams and things. Um, and I continued that once I'd got that, um, just sort of continued as it was. When I was uh, 21, I had a job and um, I worked in an organisation where, the culture was really, really unsuitable for me. And I was very direct because I felt that I was drowning a little bit in terms of, I didn't feel I was getting that support that I needed and things like that. So, um, after I left that job, which I only stayed in for seven weeks, um, it was my first ever job, first ever foray into employment. Um, I I made the decision that I was going to invest time in understanding my autism because I'd had a number of experiences between getting my diagnosis and getting to that point where things hadn't been quite right. And the best way I can describe it is if you think about old school televisions, yeah? So if when you look at all the wires being tangled around the back of your television, you got to untangle all those wires that's what the process was like for me it was like untangling a lot of wires and i felt that for me to get an understanding of it was was really the most important part and i think that i'd started to understand why i was the way i was when i was growing up you know my mannerisms the way i felt about things my perception of of the world and then i made a sort of a further decision to try and understand how I could be more proactive going forward in my life. And what I started to do was start to realize you know some of the sensory impacts that I have, started to understand why I think the way I think, why maybe at times I've been very direct, you know, understand why I become overwhelmed, why I become anxious and all of those things. So you know for me, it was a big, you know awakening really, um and it allowed me to be a lot more comfortable. It allowed me to be the person I really am. Um, and I think that over the past sort of five or so years, it's been a big, big boost for me. Um, and I've learned an awful lot about myself and I'm very, very happy with who I am and also very, very happy with the opportunities that it's, that it's given me really. Actually, I think I've become more rounded person and I've had better opportunities to help people, um, with neurodiversity, um, since I went on that journey myself
0: now Nathan you say you're a business person my question to you is this would you suggest to those out there who are autistic that it's better to become your own boss and come up with something that they're passionate about than entering into a world of work where they have to report to somebody else
1: it's a very very difficult question very very difficult question and I think that the answer um, is that it has to be what you what you want to do because I think that what you find is that some autistic individuals, the um, the skills that they have, um, are very, very useful in in certain circumstances. And if they're allowed to to work the way that they need to work, they can be very, very powerful and very, very effective within an organization, Yeah, and they can be one of the most valuable, um you know kind of assets to an organization if that's the case i think that for a lot of people it works really well to be self-employed if if if, if you have an you know something you can be self-employed with something you can do that you're really passionate about that you love in, in terms of being self-employed um, because then you can be your own boss you can work within the constructs of the way that you want to do it in your business but equally you can also work away from conventions so you could do a lot of really good work at nine o'clock in the evening or you know whatever it might be uh, when you are your most powerful and your most sort of you know switched on and motivated and driven and and however you feel and it also means that you can work in the best environments that you want to work in Um. so i think that 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 you know there's a real um you know it, it's very much dependent on the environment that you work in the role that you do um, and all of that kind of thing and i think that what we're now seeing is um a lot of people high in industry talking about the neurodiversity um less autism but certainly talking about the neurodiversity um and it's not been a barrier for for them to get to the top um and it just goes to show that you, you know you can do it but we need to see more people doing it and more people mm. showing themselves that they that they how they did it to make it more accessible, you know, top level industry, board level industry, people who can make a real difference in society, you know, need to show that how, how it was done, how it's possible. And we need to make pathways for for people to do it.
0: All right. Michelle, you got any questions?
2: I do. I'd love to hear more about your business and some of the, the strengths and challenges that you face as an autistic business owner.
1: I think that probably one of the biggest challenges for me was where do you start you know it's very very easy to get overwhelmed when you when you think about starting a business you know what 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 needs to be done first do I need to you know get a website do I need to get business insurance do I need to you know um sort of uh I suppose start social media accounts and all those things there's so much that you need to do when you set up a business it's unbelievable and where do you start and I was very very lucky I had um, some support through being um, uh, able to access it with the diagnosis. And that allowed me to then um, get some support to help me set up a business. And And, and what that allowed me to do was to get, um, you know, kind of um, switched, switched on to, what do I need to be aware of? What are the most important things? Help me sequence uh, things, priorities, how do we manage the workload incoming, all of those types of things. And I think that what I've eventually done has been to actually build up routines. Um, You know, how do we do things? And then once you build those routines and you get used to being in those routines, Mm -hmm. um, it actually helps you to um, get to a point where you can kind of, um, you're going through the key processes and, and you need to try and, repeat those processes so you don't miss something or you don't miss an incoming inquiry, whatever it might be. And and that then allows you to actually be able to be focused on the primary functions of the business, which is obviously to meet the needs of the clients.
0: All right. So Nathan, when did you know you wanted to become a ref?
1: It's an interesting story, really. I um, am my friend, his dad was a, a referee. Mm-hmm. Um in the in the non-league game in England, semi-professional. And he said, Do you want to do you want to do this? His son was my friend and uh, and he said, Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this course? And I was 16, 15, 16 years of age, and I thought, Yeah, I definitely want to do it because it's much better than having to get a job in a shop and waste my yeah. money on Saturday when I could just go out on a Saturday morning and referee some football or soccer matches and and be able to actually Earn a bit the same amount of money doing that, you know. It seemed like a much better use of my time. So and I was getting fit, and I was being active, and I was getting involved in football. Um, so that was that was what allowed me to start it. And then I think, it it you know I caught it like a bug, um, and then you get that passion you want to try and um build and and get better. You know, you see the challenge of trying to become better as a referee and getting involved in higher level games and. And and being a big part of it, we have a we have a big thing in um in England around um you know the Premier League and all the, all the professional leagues in England playing games at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, and um I think that for me now the big thing is being able to walk out to referee a football match at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon like they do at the very top level, you you want to be able to be involved in that you feel it feels big it feels like you're a part of something it's massive so I think that you know that became latterly and, and now is the motive is the motivation for me is, is to be involved in the game but certainly when I was uh, refereeing youth youth football and when I very first started it was about getting that pocket money in and and, and not having to work in a shop really
0: All right Michelle I think you had a follow-up question from the last question there.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I it prompted a new question, though. Now, Nathan, would you tell our listeners about what exactly it is that you do in your business, refereeing, all of that?
1: What I do is I, I work with officials of all sports. So, you know, rugby, football, cricket, um, American football, baseball, basketball, boxing, all of those things, referees, different types of sports on mental toughness, resilience, performance strategy, uh, mental health. Um, and that—that that is the big, big part of, of the work that I do um, within the business is, is supporting them. And I work with elite-level uh, officials who are at the very, very top of the game working on an international level who do it as a full-time job. Uh, and I'm also working with grassroots individuals, newly qualified youngsters, teenagers who are just starting out trying to deal with some of the challenges that um, you know, parents spectators w- will bring. You know, everybody thinks that their son is is the <laughs> best thing since sliced bread, and that's a big challenge when when you've got parents who, who are pushing big agendas like that. But it's also a big challenge to walk out in front of a massive crowd at an international level, big stadiums, paying crowds, big big players. You know, who who earn thousands and thousands of pounds or dollars a week, um, and um yeah so big big challenges like that and uh the other part of my business is is working with neurodivergent individuals uh quite often people who are in jobs so i work with doctors consultants in 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 medicine i work with um you know trying to think of some of the clients that i've got at the moment you know working with a university professors working with um you know people who work in supermarkets um just all sorts of different things that, you know, different walks of life, neurodivergent individuals that I coach. So those are the two big, big parts of, of my business and the way that I work. Um, I work with individuals on a one-to-one level. I work with individuals in groups. I go and speak at conferences. So one of the big conferences that I've spoken at this year was, um, was the include summit in Manchester, uh, in the UK. Um, I was talking, it was a sports specific conference, um over two days and um i i was part of a panel with an olympic um rower who was on the autistic spectrum um a film producer who's on an autistic spectrum and uh two other people that work with uh organizations that support um equality diversity and inclusion and i also delivered a workshop there um uh, about uh autism in general and in sport um so they are big big parts of 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 what i do all right
0: yeah amazing nathan how or what how did you decide to get into the mental health field
1: um so basically it, it, it was more of a refereeing um situation that actually brought me to this so i was refereeing some um youth football um you know many years ago and um i was i was doing a game and there wasn't really um very much in the game competition wise it was over as a contest because one team had scored significantly more goals than the other and um i just heard a shout go up and my sightline was blocked and then when i became unblocked i saw two players head to head and um one head butted the other one, and then he he he, he gave him a left hook with a punch, mm. and the the victim was was on the ground, um, having a fit, having been assaulted. So it was, was fitting on the ground, um, and I had a decision to make. I was on my own as a, as a as a referee at that stage. Didn't have any assistant referees with me, and I had to look and think: Do I go towards the the victim or do I go towards the perpetrator? And I decided to go towards the perpetrator because a lot of parent spectators had come on to to treat the the victim. So I got him away from the area because I was very concerned that there would be a lot of fighting that would take place after this. Um and the police came and and carried out inquiries and and the and the player was arrested and and all of that kind of thing and I had a real burst of adrenaline that got me through the day. But the next days I was having intrusive thoughts and flashbacks. Um, and the support network, for one, we are uh, for one reason or another, was was not there, and I, and I didn't have it. Um, so for me, it was really really important that um, I tried to have that resilience within me to actually overcome it, because I could have just walked away and just given up on 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 refereeing then. And I think perhaps younger, less experienced referees might have might have done that. And it became my mission then to think. How can we help referees to become more proactively prepared for psychological challenges like this? And it morphed into some of the well-being challenges that we have with referees. It morphed into some of the um really, really difficult uh aspects of um you know making sure referees are uh, you know, they need psychologically to prepare for you know some of the abuse. Well, f- frankly abuse that they take um but then I, I was doing work with sports psychologists and things like that develop a program of support for referees that would help with actually giving them performance tools to help them better so i almost became a bit of a sports psychologist for referees if you like and that's what sort of the work that i've, I've done since then has kind of morphed into all
0: right Do you
2: deal with rejection-sensitive dysphoria at all? Because I would imagine that being a referee, you're going to be rejected constantly during games. How do you you cope with that? Is that something you're challenged by?
0: Yeah,
1: I think probably being honest, you know, we all have different um, challenges um, because when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. So I think that, um, you know, I'm not personally affected by that, but what I do think is very, very challenging for particularly uh, autistic referees that I've spoken to is, you know, the constant criticism, and it's personal, but really it's a bit like being a police officer, I think. It's more the badge on the chest than actually who you are as a person. I don't think it matters. I think they only see the badge, they don't see the person. So I think that, um, you know, from my perspective, it, it One of these things that that you're discussing there around that, it's it's a big, big aspect of, of what we have to do, but almost preparing referees for rejection is the biggest part of probably what I've got to do, because the fact is, half the time, you're going to turn up and people are just not going to be having you. They're just not going to be having you. They're just going to think, this guy here is here to ruin my team's day. He's, he's here to cause us problems and be a pain. And they don't understand that you're there to apply the laws of the game and you want to do it because you want to be involved in the game because you love the game. You've got to love the game to take the amount of abuse and rejection, like you say, that, you, that you're that you going to take over a period of 90 minutes. So it's a big, big challenge. Um, and it's about being able to accept that you're going to make mistakes, which can be hard because it affects people. Um, but, yeah, I think it's a big part of what we do is trying to help and um, people to accept that they're going to make mistakes that they're human beings that it's an inevitability and that um trying to provide them with the tools to bounce back from that to be then on the front foot to say right that's gone i can't do anything about it can't change it it's gone it's past, it's over what can i do to get the next one right how can i how can i get things right for the rest of the game deliver the rest of the game successfully so that's a big big part of probably what i'm trying to do with, with the clients right
0: nathan what would you say your hyper focus is?
1: It's a very, very difficult question. That one, probably it is. It probably is football and sport and, and or soccer, um, primarily because I think that my hyper focus is probably around knowing players in obscure levels and things oh, like yeah. that, and and have a real interest in, in 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 football or soccer, as you would say, in that regard. Um, you know, and 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 I, I look into things a lot. I've got a very critical eye. Um, I think deeply about things. How could we change things? How could that be done better? I'm a, I'm not a fan of bureaucracy and red tape, I, which I, I don't think I'm unique in, in that regard as, a, as an autistic person. But, um, you know, I always look and think, why do you do these things? Why do you go around in circles? Why do you have a meeting about a meeting when you could just shoot, say, look, this is what we think, this is what we want to do. You know, so mm-hmm. I think that there's there's a lot of elements of that 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 I that I really do, and I, but I think that what I probably would say that I'm kind of hyper focused on is I'm very very passionate as a person, um, and that 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 I think that comes across, and I'm I'm probably a little bit all or nothing, you know, when I love something and I'm really into it, I'm, I give a hundred percent, but probably don't give things that I don't enjoy as much as much attention as I probably should do. So the balance is probably not quite there.
0: You got any questions, Michelle?
2: Not at the time, not right now.
0: All right, Nathan, we're go. Let's go back to football for a minute. Do you have a favorite mm. team?
1: Yeah, I'm a big Newcastle United fan.
0: Okay, and I take it you go to the pubs and everything, and you you become one of the hooligans and you root for your team. <laughs> yeah
1: i uh, no i'm a well behaved uh, i'm a well behaved <laughs> young man dude. there's no doubt about that um but yeah i think you know it, it's i think it's probably i would imagine it's like american football in the us in terms of it's the main sport the one that the, the majority of people go to and i've seen i've seen the way that the fans are the, you know fanatical about college games you know you're talking about young people 40, 50,000 people. It's an unbelievable sport and mm-hmm. experience. Um for, for, you know, with all due respect, something that's not like the NFL, it's not the top level, but you still get so many thousands of people going there. I just I find that unbelievable. I think it's something that the you know that the US needs to be very, very proud of that they can mm-hmm. that they can provide crowds and, and they're that fanatical about that. Um, but it's exactly the same here about football. Um, you know, you you can go down seven eight nine tiers away from the professional game and you still see crowds in the hundreds to come to games where you know really it's it's a very very low level um but there's the, the passion for the for the for the game is is such that uh that it can do that so i think you know for sure um it, it's something that i you know we, we love it it's like a religion
0: all right i i have to say though um i find it amazing that even in the uk you guys have your fanatical parents who want to jump in on the game and thinking they're like yeah. you said like their son or daughter is everything and all mm-hmm. i mean it's just nuts to think that even in the uk you have the crazy parents as well
1: and yeah. you gotta deal yeah. with it yeah yeah for sure it's something that we have to we have to try and help young referees to deal with because i think i think it's quite hard for 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 let's call them what they are children who are 14 15 16 years of age they're they're developing some huge life skills that are going to help them with their future careers when they, you know when they leave school when they graduate university that kind of thing that are going to take into the careers these skills that they've learned as referees in terms of working as a team, making decisions under pressure, all of those fantastic things that refereeing gives you. But um, you know I think that we have to we have to look at the fact that they are still children, and that when they get abused from the touchlines, it's child abuse, and it needs to be called out for what it is. Um, and so I do think that you know whilst it's 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 important, it needs to be done in the right way. Because because the youngsters, the young kids who are learning to referee very much in the same way that the children that they are refereeing are developing their skills as football players. So it's a full-on learning environment, inclusive of referees, not just for the youngsters that are playing. All right. Nathan,
2: uh, how do you think being a referee has changed how you are as a person? Do you think it's given you additional skills or
0: yeah.
2: changed how you interact with the world?
1: Absolutely, Michelle, it really, really has. Um, I think it's given me a, a, a massive confidence, Um, you know, and I've, I've grown and like I've touched on the skills, communicating with people is really important. Managing people is really, really important. Um, being able to to kind of have empathy for people, you know, because when you make a big decision against somebody, they're not going to be happy about it. But If you just say, I don't care, go away, all that, it doesn't really work. You've got to say, look, I understand it's not the right decision that you wanted to hear, but this is why I'm doing it. You know, so I think trying, trying to do all that and having those skills and being confident and being able to go out there and 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 do all that is stuff that I've, I've really worked and I reflect on the fact that um I'm a trustee of a of a UK autism charity, and um I've become uh had the opportunity I should say to um chair a committee. Um, within the autism charity uh, last week, um, and I was talking to um, a chair uh, another chair of the within the, within the organisation who also chairs in the committee, another trustee of the charity, um, and he was saying to me that he was impressed with the, with the, with the confidence that I bring and the authority that I had and the way I managed the time, which is obviously another part of refereeing. I think it was a lot of skills that he he knew I'm a referee, so he 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 was saying that he felt a lot of skills that I'd gained from refereeing helped me to. Be a really good chairperson for that committee meeting um, on that charity, and it's something that I've actually had before. I had the opportunity to chair um, the committee meeting. It's something that I've I've really really loved to do, even since I became a trustee on this charity, because it's actually having the um, the uh, gumption or the or the feeling to step up and say what I think. Because um, the charity is called Daisy Chain. Um and I would really encourage people to to look 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 up and particularly UK-based listeners. Um and you know, I'm the first trustee for this charity to be on the spectrum, and it's an autism charity. So I feel like I'm the first ever person who can advocate for the beneficiaries of the charity at board level. Um, so in terms of me speaking up and, and giving a perspective as a as a person who's on this spectrum about how might our beneficiaries feel about some of the decisions that we are taking, big decisions, huge decisions that have an impact on, on the support that they get, Um, you know, is, is, it, it, it's a big thing. So I think going back to your original question, refereeing has given me some fantastic skills to be able to come and communicate at board level and advocate and share my ideas at board level to help this charity be really, really successful. Um, You know, as uh, as we work forwards, and and I'm hugely proud to be the first um, autistic board member, uh, and I, I, you know I'm looking forward to having a long association with the charity and hopefully helping you know many generations of of of, of autistic youngsters who access the charity in the years to come. That's yeah.
2: awesome. It's so important that we have people on the inside in all of these charities mm-hmm. and organisations who are yeah. autistic, who understand it, and who can speak for. Others from a place of knowing.
0: Absolutely, Nathan. When you go out and you referee, or when you're out in public on your own, do you mask, or have you just foregone masking altogether and just said, "Screw it, what well, I want the world to accept me as I am"?
1: No, no, I think I do. I think I do. I think, um I think quite often I go to I go to meetings like board meetings at the charity and. I might be feeling a certain way. And and I know it might sound a little bit, um, a little bit kind of, I don't want really to use the word backward, but it does sound backward that I would do it in such a place, such as a, an autistic charity that I would be, that I would not be the way I am. But I think it's because I really, I, I need to mask in order to be focused and switched on and, and to, be, to be a confident version of myself. Um, I don't think that I, I can manage it when I'm fully relaxed and, you know, perhaps I stim or whatever, you know, and mm-hmm. get focused. And, 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 and so I think that actually the masking allows me to kind of be really switched on, really, um, you know, driven, focused. But then I think what I do realise um, is that, you know, so for example, when I have a coaching session that's two hours long, I'm coming out of that and my head is like, whoa, you know, it's just because I've been switched on for two hours and I've been presenting myself as somebody else, masking. So I think, and I I don't actually, I think it's probably unfair to say i would be presenting myself as somebody else, but I think I'm presenting a different version of myself is what I should say. Um, So I think that, yeah, what I do find is that when I've done that, it actually uh, does um kind of have a, a bit of a toll afterwards where i feel like a bit more exhausted a bit more you know worn out and a bit really sort of um sensorily you know exhausted so i think the, the, the there's that but i think um the one thing i don't think it actually stops me doing is and i hope like i'm speaking to you now i hope, I hope that comes across is being candid about my autism and being open and honest about it i still don't think that um, it, it actually prevents me from doing that and, and and speaking truthfully about the realities of it, which, like I say, before I was 21, I would have never done and, and never understood really even. All
0: right. Now, do you have ADHD as well, or are you just strictly autistic?
1: Yes, I'm strictly autistic. I, uh, <laughs> I've decided I need to stay in my lane in terms of autism. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't stay in my lane ADHD. It's... Uh, It's not a gift that's been bestowed upon me.
0: Right. My last question to you before the last very last is, what is the autism scene like in the UK? I mean, have they been helpful to you with all your endeavors and everything else?
1: I think um, we have a long, long way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And it upsets me. I think if I I came to power and I was the prime minister uh, of the UK, I would want to make it more of a priority and not just autism, also ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, you know, all all forms of neurodiversity need to have a greater level of awareness. And, you know, I'm 26 years of age, but even when I was at school, which wasn't obviously as long ago as as, as maybe some autistic people who have a big profile, um, I still felt that it was used as a stick to beat people with, autism. Um, certainly not understood, and um, I think we need to increase a level of understanding of what autism really is, because I think there's a general perception of, if you're talking about an autistic individual, you're talking about somebody who's non-verbal, who you know, um, spends a lot of time in in sensory rooms, um, you know, is unable to wash themselves, is unable to, uh you know kind of even communicate really and the reality is that um the uh when I joined Daisy Chain as a trustee and I went to the to the to the building that they that they use um I was 24 years of age and it was the first time I'd ever been in a sensory room so I think that just goes to show how you know you can be autistic but you you, you you doesn't mean you've ever even been in a sensory room, you know. And I probably wouldn't have been in a sensory room to this day had I not become a trustee at that charity. So that, I think that I think that speaks volumes for what it is. So I think we need to understand what autism is, um, mm. and we need to talk about how can we make accommodations for people, which is probably a whole other podcast read. But the reality <laughs> is that accommodations that can be made for. For people in the workplace, at school, in in various different environments to allow them to be the best version of themselves and to perform at their optimum level.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had recently just talked with the Prime Minister, the Assistant Prime Minister of Australia of autism. And what they, I can really say is they have pushed the bar on what is needed and what should be done to work the whole where the whole world is like behind them when it comes to help and we need to follow suit and you're right i mean a lot of these i've talked with people all over and they all say the same thing they don't have the kind of resources that other countries have Mm -hmm. australia especially because they're way ahead of the game and what they do and i think as a nation we need to look to them as this is how we should do things.
1: I definitely agree with you, Reed. And, and I think that what we have to remember is Australia became the very first country to do mental health first aid training. Mm-hmm. um, And oh. that has shown that the that, that much ahead in that. And they've always been very much ahead in terms of, you know, new, uh, neurological, psychological, neurodiversity, all those aspects of unseen challenges. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, they have always been somebody that we look to. But, you know, one of the things I really struggle with, Reid, is that we we live in a society where I feel increasingly many, many, you know, key nations like the US, the UK, um, you know, are, are starting to become a lot more nationalistic um, and are starting to become a lot more um, isolationist where you are exactly right. We need to be reaching out to our partners and neighbours. To look at what they're doing well and to work with them on that as well, to have conversations to say, you know, if I'm if I if I'm the Prime Minister of the UK and you're the president of the US, I need to be having a call with you to say, this is a key priority for me. How are you doing it, Mr. President? How can how can we work together to to learn from each other, to develop together so that we have two really important nations leading the way? Um, you know, in, in this in this area that is really, really important because we've got millions of our citizens that are impacted by neurodiversity and we need to make a big, big, um, you know, we need to make a big, big priority to support these citizens. So that's very much my thought on it.
0: I mean, I know when I was talking with the prime minister, she said they saw there's there are there people falling through the cracks and they were like, we can't have this. this- these are our citizens. We need to do something. And that's when this initiative of being, having the first assistant minister of autism came to be. And now she's talking with organizations all over, establishing policies, this and that, to the fact to now she's talking to the only four schools in the country, colleges in the country, saying, if you have People who want to become teachers in secondary school and in high schools, you need they need to go through autistic training so they know how to deal with autistic children. Mm-hmm. And then she went on yeah. to tell me the story about how this one kid was failing in this one school. His mother pulled him out, put him in another school, and now he's succeeding because he had a yeah. teacher who knew how to deal with autism to the fact now he's selling popcorn in their petrol stations all over Australia
1: that's an unbelievable story and I have to you know I have to share my own probably story around education which is that you know when I um, when I was in secondary school even with the added time that I spoke about in the exams I I still only got decidedly average grades nothing special at all just 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 passed a lot of subjects when I went to um, you know kind of sixth form colleges college, as you guys would call it in the US. Um, I did continual assessment for all of my um, studies that I was doing there. And I, I got uh, the top mark in all of the three subjects that I did it, in in there. Um, and that was because of it, it was a process of continual assessment. So I wasn't the problem, but the way that I was being asked to almost um, express my qualities was the issue and so that that would be certainly one of the things that i would look to try and change um would be to afford really anybody but in particular neurodivergent youngsters um a continual assessment way of 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 um kind of doing their qualifications right down from starting school to the end of university because i feel that um it's really really important that People are allowed to express themselves and the qualities that they have in a way that they can do that best. I think exams are an absolutely terrible way of actually trying to evaluate the qualities of of, of neurodivergent mm-hmm. individuals because of a lot of the barriers that they have.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I think you're spot on with that so mm-hmm. many of us are challenged by exams and traditional learning techniques and you know we get labeled as being learning disabled but what if these are really just learning differences and maybe we can look at these as just different ways of learning different ways of expressing ourselves mm-hmm. and just have some more understanding
0: absolutely Nathan let, and um, Michelle let me ask you both a question when I've Because when I've been taking um, on time testings in college, do you both have the same issue where when you see somebody leaving before you, do you panic? Like, oh, gee, I don't want to be the last one here. I don't want to be the last person to finish my test while everyone else is done. And then you rush for your test and just hand it in.
2: I'll let you answer first if you want, Nathan.
0: No, yeah, no, I I think.
1: I think I think that's a very very fair appraisal. I think you I think I always had that when I was at school. I never wanted to be the last one. Um mm-hmm. and I, what I found really difficult was I have a lot of coordination difficulties, which is part of the reason why I wasn't a very good football player but why I'm more involved as a as a as a referee. Um so I couldn't handwrite very well. So what made it worse for me was when I was trying to rush to write things faster. This was when I was a lot younger. I ended up using a laptop when I did my uh, Exams later on at school, but um, yeah, I ended up trying to write things faster and it just became even worse. And I was left handed as well, so really? we used to have to use uh, fountain pens at um at school. And I used to have a big line of um blue ink smudged all up the side of my hand because I was going back over what I'd already written. And so <laughs> I ended up with loads of smudged just bits of paper that couldn't be read. And I was trying to write so fast that I used to get pens in my hands, and it was an absolute nightmare complete and utter nightmare, absolutely terrible um and yeah it was absolutely made worse by thinking that I was going to be left behind which was which was a terrible thing for me at school yeah
2: yeah I had I had a similar experience I'm also left-handed and yes I would see people finishing their tests before me and I would want to try and hurry and get out of there at a reasonable time I never wanted to be the last person taking a test um and I was just laughing when you were saying all that nathan because yeah i always had a black smudge all along my hand no matter what kind of pen it was because i'm writing fast and then the teachers would get upset with me for having illegible handwriting (laughs) and that was so frustrating because i tried so hard to write legibly Mm -hmm. to keep up with everyone else and i just you know i just needed those accommodations
0: yeah and i really didn't get accommodations Mm -hmm.
2: until until college
0: What's funny for me is it. What didn't doesn't occur to me is half the people in the room are taking different tests than I am, so they can finish before me because maybe they're taking a short. Their test is shorter than mine. I'm I'm not thinking that everyone in the room are taking different tests, so that's yeah. why I panic. I'm thinking, oh, everyone's taking the same test. I need to rush. Anyways, Nathan, where can people find out more about you and your business?
1: they can they can do so by visiting the uh, the thirdteam.co.uk um and they can uh, also follow the third team on twitter or x or whatever it's called now and uh, instagram facebook uh linkedin uh and and they can also view me as an individual on linkedin um and i would really urge people to visit the website and um and to sign up to the to the blog uh, i write a new blog every week um, on every Friday at, f- at five o'clock UK time. So what's that going to be? 12 Eastern. And, um, and obviously um, I've been doing that now for over four years um, and I've written probably about 215, 220, something like that, blogs every week consecutively. Um, so yeah, would really, really look forward to engaging and hearing from people um on on social media and and hopefully people enjoy visiting the website too
0: and that's it ladies and gentlemen i'm reed miles joined by michelle markham and that was nathan shirat i'll see you in the next one everyone thank you nathan for being on the show thanks so much